So welcome everybody. Thanks, uh, thanks very much for coming to this, uh, uh, to this summer school lecture. It is a great pleasure to introduce Professor Michael Cox, who is Emeritus Professor of International Relations at LSE. Uh, he joined LSE in 2002 uh, and uh, also is since 2008 Director of LSE Ideas, which is the uh, global strategy and diplomacy think tank here uh, at LSE. Uh, Professor uh, Mikox is uh, a renowned authority in international relations and has fulfilled many important professional roles in the, in the disciplines, including being the chair of the uh, European Consortium of Political Research, which is the largest political science uh, organization association in, uh, uh, in Europe. He's also uh, associate research fellow of Chatham House and the Royal United Services Institute, and is also uh, on the panel of experts of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Uh, he is the author of, of many books, more than 20, so too many to, uh, to list, uh, author or editor, uh, and also, of course, many, uh, many articles, and many of them deal with, uh, with American power, the role of America in the world, but also with long-term trajectories in, uh, uh, in global politics. So I don't think there are scarcely any, any people who are better qualified to give us a sense of where we are, where the world is, and where the world is going. Thank you very much uh, for giving this lecture. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You can clap, actually. Thank you. Don't be shy in worshipping me. It's not a problem, really, believe me. Uh, well, first of all, welcome uh, to LSE Summer School. Some of you may be doing it for the first time. Some of you may be doing a second, second round, but it's great. It's a great institution. And, of course, it's, uh, it's located in a, in a very great institution as, as well, the, the London School of Economics is. As Matty has said, I've been here for several years, but I've been teaching international relations in one form or another since the 20th century, I always say. Um, but we are faced today with a new phenomenon, one of the new questions we've been looking at, and this is the question of the critique of globalization, which is now becoming more general, whether or not the liberal order we have known for the last 40 or 50 years, I suppose, certainly since the end of the Cold War, but even before, is that under threat? Is that coming to an end, as some believe? And how does this relate to the whole question of what is called the populist revolt, uh, which, of course, is associated in this country with the issue of Brexit and across the water, and I don't mean the channel, uh, across the Atlantic uh, with uh, Donald Trump. The and beyond, I'm not too sure about, but we'll, 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 we'll speculate about that. So uh, let me start off with a quote, and guess if you can guess who wrote it and when. A spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. All the powers of old Europe have entered into a holy alliance to exorcise this spectre. The Pope, uh, the Tsar of Russia, Metternich, then Chancellor of Austria, Guizot, Prime Minister of France, French radicals and German police spies. Well, I think by now you may have guessed that somebody talking about the spectre of communism haunting Europe uh, in the mid, mid of the 19th century was none other than Karl Marx. And he wrote that, by the way, in the Communist Manifesto, which I'm sure you read every night before you go to sleep. Or not. I used to. Different days. Well, it would seem there is another very different spectre uh, haunting Europe today, but it's not communism. Uh, that, for the time being, I suppose, has been consigned to that proverbial dustbin of history. 
But another dangerous ism, and that ism, as I'm sure you're all aware, what I'm going to be talking about tonight, is something that has come to be known as populism. Now, of course, there's been varieties of populism in the past. It's not new in some ways. Russia had its own species of populism during the 1870s and 1880s. Uh, indeed, it was a populist who killed the Tsar, Tsar Alexander. Um, a similar, though politically less radical, version of populism grew up in the United States, by the way, in the late 19th century, in the 1890s, an agrarian populism, as it was then called, and it reappeared in America during the 1950s, during the Cold War, in the shape of McCarthyism, as it was then defined. And then, of course, there were the many varieties of populism, which I was told when I was a student a long time ago was the main problem in Latin America during the post-war years. You will remember uh, Evita Perón, but obviously she was less important, by the way, than her husband, Juan Perón, and this gave rise to a thing called Peronism in Argentina. And this was, I was told by my, my then lecturer on, on a Latin American politics, it was a very nasty kind of populism, largely because Perón himself, Juan, and then Evita, liked speaking to the masses, but more importantly, because he didn't like the British. So in some regards, what is known as populism is not new. Uh, indeed, I can well recall reading my first book on the subject, can you imagine, in 1969, my goodness me, that takes me back a long way, when I was studying politics then um, in the UK. And that was a rather fine LSE study edited by a very great duo, uh, both now dead, of course, uh, Ernest Gellner, wonderful anthropologist, and a wonderful Romanian sociologist and public intellectual called Gita Ionescu. And they wrote a book in 69 called Populism, Its Meanings and National Characteristics. Much historical study. So we might say there's nothing new going on here, really. Nothing new under the sun. It's always the re repetition of things we've heard and seen before. But I think that would be wrong. But clearly there is something rather significant happening today. For one thing, the populist problem, as it's often referred to, appears to have migrated towards Europe, where it didn't have too much of a hold before, maybe except in France. And for another, it has assumed a much more widespread form. Indeed, whereas previous populisms were specifically national in character, Russian, American, whatever, this new populism has assumed a more international form. Furthermore, if the pundits are to be believed, and generally speaking, you shouldn't believe them, this new populism is much more of a challenge than anything we have witnessed in the past. Certainly, if we were to listen to most European leaders today, and even after the Macron election in France, it would appear that populism has become the political challenge of our age. German finance minister Wolfgang Schaubler I definitely think so. Not a man to mince his words, our Schabler. He talked of a rising tide, quote, of demagogic populism. It's always demagogic, by the way. Which, if not dealt with frontally and decisively, could easily threaten the whole edifice of the European Union. He was then, by the way, speaking of Greece and what was going on in Greece. Uh, and it's still going on in Greece, but was going on in Greece in a more critical way two or three years ago. So Schabler said, no doubt, this is a, a dangerous and demagogic thing. A Chatham House uh, report, which I've been associated, not the report, but with Chatham House, came to much the same conclusion a few years ago. Quote, the trend of rising support in Europe, largely, for populist extremist parties, again another word, extremist, therefore bad, uh, its author wrote, has been one of the most striking developments 
in modern European politics, one which not only poses a challenge to Europe alone, but to democracy itself. Well, that's a dangerous thing. A chairman of KPMG, a finance house, I'm sure you know, a man called John Weimeyer, was in no doubt either recently. He opined in late 2016, populism in Europe and the rise of it remains the biggest threat to the continent's stability, much bigger threat even than Brexit. Well, can you consider that for a moment? Brexit worried him, but the more general recent rise of what he called anti-system populist and quite extreme political parties in Europe, particularly in Western Europe, but not only because it's to be found in Hungary and Poland and elsewhere, worried him much more and did so, as an economist I suppose, not just because of the threat it posed to European political structures, but a threat to globalization more generally. But is this just a European uh, phenomenon? Well, clearly not. Uh, across the Atlantic in the dear old US of A, a similar, if not exactly identical, dragon emitting all sorts of unpleasant and noxious sounds has arisen in the shape of Mr. Donald Trump, the man with the haircut. One of the very few billionaires in modern history who also lays claim to being a man of the people. But billionaire or not, this quite extraordinary political phenomenon, and it becomes more extraordinary every day it goes by, has delivered shock and awe in equal amounts, uh, not only to the United States, but also to the rest of the world. Indeed, by tapping into popular discontent in what Gavin Esler, who wrote many years ago, a very good book, 1998, The United States of Anger, he wrote that in 1998. Uh, Trump has shaken the US establishment to its core. That's why they hate him, by the way. Not to mention their European partners, and they equally dislike Trump, as you've seen in his recent visits, although he seems to get on quite well in France, which is an interesting, interesting turn of events. And of course, why, one of the reasons he's done this and managed to upset so many people, both in his own country and across the world, uh, particularly in the European Union, is by saying things and maybe even doing things one is not supposed to say or do in polite company. Taking pot shots along the way, particularly during his uh, extraordinary election, most extraordinary moment in my life, I was 2016, I haven't quite got over it actually. He took, he took pot shots along the way against, I'll give you the following enemies. Globalism, un-American. The liberal press, fake news. Judiciary and the intelligence agencies, dodgy. Climate change, hoax. Human rights, you've got to be kidding. Democracy promotion, we tried that before and it failed. Immigration, hmm. And of course the EU itself. Brexit is a wonderful thing, he said on June the 24th. Fine thing the British have done, taking back control. Now, this is not what an incoming president of either political party is supposed to be saying. Moreover, you'll recall, it wasn't just Trump in the United States who railed and moaned and groaned and complained against the elites and the powerful last year during the 2016 US presidential. So too did Bernie Sanders. Bernie, the only American who calls himself now a socialist and looks like a banker. But Bernie Sanders may term himself a socialist. And he could never have said many of the appalling things, let's be honest, which Trump said about women, Mexicans, and all the rest. <clears throat> but some of his targets on the political economy, at least, most obviously the corporations, whom Bernie said had sold the American workers short, and the Wall Street financiers, 
They were not such dissimilar enemies to those identified by Trump. However far apart they may have been at one level, on some fundamental things, the attack on corporations, Wall Street finances, the selling of jobs abroad to make profits for big American corporations against the Americans, that was very, very similar. And let's not forget how effective Sanders was during 2017. Easily forgotten now, maybe not, certainly not by Hillary Clinton. Hillary may have won the Democratic nomination uh, in the end, uh, but Sanders inspired his supporters, inspired his supporters in the way that Trump has and still does, in ways that she never did. But if Sanders and Trump together can be classified as populist, though I'm sure they don't share very much more in common, then who, one wonders, is not now a populist? I'm kind of work, trying to work this out. Where do the ideological fault lines actually lie? Should Jeremy Corbyn not also be defined as a populist? After all, he claims, and does claim, to speak on behalf of the many rather than the few. Classic populist line. But then so too does poor Mrs May. Uh, she's still our Prime Minister, by the way, at least was at half past five when I left. Mrs. May, in her rush to win over the white working class in the election, unsuccessfully, you'll notice, talked quite volubly of governing in favour of the left-behinds and the just-about-managings in order to make Britain, in her view, a country that works for everyone and not just the rich and powerful toffs who used to congregate around David Cameron. Yet this has also been the dominant narrative of attacks on the elites and the powerful and the rich of such political parties as Syriza in Greece, the Five Star Movement in Italy, and Podemos in Spain. And all three of those are on the left. Now this cannot be said of the National Front in France, of course, but there's no more rampant populist in Europe today than Marine Le Pen, who has waxed lyrical against the European Union and its twin, rampant globalisation, both of which have, in her words, been endangering that thing called French civilization. Indeed, notice this. While the successful former banker, Macron, made his appeal to the better educated in prosperous cities like Lyon and Toulouse, Le Pen spoke most of her time campaigning in the rundown towns of the northeast. And, and, and the southeast, speaking to workers whose parents, if not they themselves, have probably once voted communist. Not a not, not dissimilar thing that Trump very successfully did as well, by the way. So populism would thus seem to defy easy political pigeonholing. But on one thing most writers on the subject, I have found, seem to be united. And this is really quite a consensus on this. Not everybody, but I, I make a generalisation to make the point clearer than the truth, as they say. But on one thing most writers on the subject seem to be united. They don't much like it and have tended to approach the subject of populism with a mixture of enormous surprise. Who amongst them predicted Brexit and Trump in 2016? None of them. Mixed in with what I call a strong dash of ideological distaste. In fact, even the most cursory glance at the literature with a few notable exceptions, reveals what I would call a distinct liberal bias against populists and against populism. This bias has not gone unnoticed, of course. Indeed, in a recent piece in Money Week, authored by 
John Stepek, no idea who he is, by the way, he made the entirely fair point that as far as he could make out, quote, the bulk of opinion columns across the range of newspapers dealing with populism tended to fall into two main categories, sneering or patronising. <laughs> the controversial British sociologist, the person I once used to know quite well, Frank Ferretti, was more scathing still in a recent piece, blog. Populism, he argued, had virtually become a term of abuse directed against anybody critical of the status quo. Worse, it implied that the revolt facing the West today was not a legitimate response to deep-seated problems, but was rather the problem itself. There's something to this, I think. It's clearly shown, for example, in the way populists are invariably described. How could we ever forget the use of the word deplorables? Made famous or infamous by Mrs. Clinton in her description of Trump's supporters during the 2016 campaign. Not a very bright thing to have done, actually. But this was only one tip of a very large liberal iceberg. Other epithets have been deployed against populist and populism too. And this is only a sample. And these are the ones which I can speak about in public. Irrational. Racist. Xenophobic. Losers. Ooh, gosh. Dangerously illiberal. Economically illiterate. Morally inferior. And of course, the best epithet of all, pig thick. Even when poor old populists participate in and win elections or referendum, they're still castigated as being a threat to democracy. This was clearly the conclusion arrived at in one recent and influential book on the subject. Populists may claim to talk in the name of the people, argued a man called Jan Werner Muller in his well-reviewed study, What is Populism, written last year. But one should not be deceived, he said. When populists actually assume power, he warned, they will create an authoritarian state that excludes all those not considered to be part of the proper people. Beware the populists, therefore. They may talk the democratic talk, but hidden behind all that rhetoric is a dangerously anti-democratic impulse. You can't win. And even if you win an election, you're still against democracy. The antagonism to populism may, of course, of course, be understandable, given that so much of what some populists say is deeply concerning from a liberal perspective, and many perspectives. Moreover, as their critics have legitimately pointed out, and I'm not trying to make a defense of populism here, trying to understand it, their policies can be and have proven to be deeply disturbing. Still, we face a quandary, I think. It's a moral quandary. It's an intellectual quandary for me and I think for any public intellectual. On the one side, there are the analysts of populism whom I've described, who tend in the main to look at the phenomenon of populism all the time holding their noses as if there was a bad smell in the room. On the other side, there are very millions of very, quote-unquote, ordinary people out there who actually vote for such movements. If nothing else, it says something about the state of the West today when you have the overwhelming bulk of public intellectuals lining up on one side to critique populism, some more fairly than others, to be sure, and millions of their fellow citizens on the other voting in their drive, droves for parties and individuals of which most experts and academics appear to disapprove. Now, Trump may not be my cup of tea, <coughs> or yours, 
But he did, after all, win the US presidential election last November, didn't you notice? Yet we seem to despise him and those who voted for him. Brexit was not my preferred option last June. I still haven't got over it. But it gathered in, unfortunately, but it gathered in more votes than remain and did so because it tapped into something important. And while Viktor Orban of Hungary would not be my preferred candidate for prime minister in that country in 2014, even though his vote went down in Hungary, his Fidesz party did win 44% of the popular vote, while his allies only won 26%. Now my point here, I hope, is a simple but important one. We don't have to like or agree with populists. We don't have to marry them. But we should at least try and distance ourselves from our own political or ideological preferences and try and move beyond moral outrage at something so many of us might not like and instead seek to understand what is happening here. Because something clearly is happening. And what is that something? Well, we should not exaggerate, nor should we conclude the world we have known is about to collapse. It is not. But the tectonic plates, I think, are shifting. The mood across the West amongst millions of people is turning sour. Many millions of people are obviously very unhappy with the old order and have expressed their alienation by voting against the establishment in very large numbers. This has expressed itself through different political parties, left and right. It has taken different forms in different countries. Each nation has its own peculiarities. But the new populism, as I've called it, is more than just a reflection of national exceptionalisms or national exceptionalism. There's something much more widespread going on here. Moreover, this is very interesting, I think. This something is not happening in the developing countries or the poor South, where millions and billions of people have little or nothing. Rather, it is taking place in the rich and democratic West, largely. Not entirely, but still. And it clearly constitutes a distinct threat to the old order. Francis Fukuyama certainly seems to think so. If you remember, Francis Fukuyama came up with that phrase, end of history, back in 1989. On the back of those uh, three words, he became an academic superstar. The article's rather second rate, by the way. But he certainly seems to think that something's going on here. As I said, back in 89, uh, he talked in grandiloquent terms of the end of history, the liberal order was triumphant. Liberalism would now be triumphant forever, presumably. And liberalism had triumphed over all of its ideological rivals in the 20th century. And no doubt liberals could look forward to an even better 21st century. Now, he's worried, really worried. And when Frank Fukuyama gets worried, boy, oh boy, does he get worried. He's worried now the liberal moment, the liberal world order, as in the title, may be over. Indeed, in his view, the real threat to the West today thus to globalization, may not be coming from other rising powers, the standard IR stuff, China rising, Russia and all that. No, 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 no. It's coming from within, not from without. And according to Fukuyama, it is not just Europe or the United States that will have to live with the consequences. It will be the liberal order itself. So that kind of brings you to the obvious. But what the hell are you talking about, Professor Cox? What's populism? Well, it's not an easy answer, I have to be perfectly honest with you. But one can, I suppose, say that populism reflects a deep suspicion in many countries, and not just in the West, by the way. I've just come back from India where the BJP could be defined quite clearly 
as a populist party, and the Modi could be defined as very clearly a populist party, or Erdogan in Turkey, but I'm largely focusing on the kind of Western phenomenon here at the moment. It's clearly a deep suspicion of a prevailing and liberal establishment. Um, that this establishment, in the view of most populists across the world, does not just rule in the common good, but conspires against the people, the authentic people of India or Turkey or, or Britain or the United States. And that the people, who are however defined, are the true repositories, the soul of the nation, the soul of the nation. Populists also tend in the main to be nativist, that's to say they look inward, not outward so much, suspicious of foreigners, at least certain kinds of foreigners. They always like enemies. Having a good enemy is always a good thing for a populist. Uh, though this is more to be found on the right than the left, but not always. More often than not, they are also sceptical of the facts. There's a long, long history of being sceptical of facts provided by other people who provide facts you don't agree with, and therefore you construct your own. Uh, and in most cases, and again this is true of the right and the left, they don't much like intellectuals. Uh, LSE is not very popular amongst populists, okay? Uh, he's not very popular amongst populists. I'm deeply unpopular amongst populists. Uh, I'm very happy to be so. Uh, nor in general do populists like big cities and the metropolitan types who live in big cities like me and him. Uh, we are, or they are, we metropolitans, we are the um, anywheres. We can live anywhere. Now, a recent book has been published by a very old colleague of mine, old mate of mine, who used to edit a magazine called Prospect, David Goodhart. And David Goodhart, who's kind of become very soft on populism, I suppose some would say, but very understanding of populism, he believes that the populists, uh, what we call populists, are people we should call somewheres. No, remember that word, somewheres. That is to say people who want to be part of somewhere, as opposed to those like him and me who are anywheres. Indeed, he argues that the fault line in Britain today, and not just in Britain, and the same might be true of many other Western countries, including the United States, is between those who come from somewhere, rooted in specific place or community, usually a small town, or in the countryside, socially usually conservative, though not always, often less educated in the formal sense of education, and those on the other side, uh, the anywheres, who come from anywhere, <laughs> Footloose, often urban, socially liberal, university educated, and who tend to feel at home nearly everywhere, and who have a passport and often use it, I suppose. And it is the somewheres, according to David Goodhart in his book, Road to Somewhere, that we have to understand. For it is the somewheres who are voting for the populists. And I think that's a neat, maybe overly simple way of kind of thinking of this, but a distinction. But one should beware, however, before one gets too patronising, that because populist voters tend to be generally less well-educated, and you can see this if you look at the Trump and you look at Brexit, there's a general educational kind of correlation of voting behaviour, um, it, 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 it tends to, not to think of populists as being fools, and I find this in the literature as well. I think this would be a major mistake. Indeed, even if most supporters and voters of populist parties have less formal education, this does not mean they are irrational. They are not. Those who planned Brexit in the UK had a much better grasp of politics than their opponents. Totally. 
Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, the populists, in the shape of Mr. Trump, unlike their critics, in the shape of Mrs. Clinton, had a very clear plan. Indeed, it was their very big thinker and strategist, Steve Bannon, devil incarnate, who plotted the campaign that finally won Donald Trump the White House by focusing in on precisely those issues, immigration, unfair trade, free-riding allies in Europe, which traditional conservatives in the Republican Party, not to mention the Clinton people, had hitherto ignored and didn't want to talk about. But what has caused this surge of support for populism? Let me just try and deal with that if I could. Well, I think there's at least three competing narratives, just to bring it into focus. One narrative about how do you explain this modern phenomenon, it's, a bit of, it's an old argument really, is if you want to kind of win elections, be nasty. If you want to kind of win elections in countries like India and Turkey, attack people. Get a scapegoat. You always need a scapegoat. Whether it's foreigners without, whether it's within India with Modi and Muslims, whatever. Foreigners, immigrants. And recently, Moses Nam, who uh, a very fine editor of the magazine Foreign Policy, which is, a, I think, a very readable magazine, unlike most academic journals, I have to say, um, he says you, could, you must take populism seriously, but he argues it's actually got no intellectual coherence at all. It's merely a rhetorical tactic. The, the demagogue, demagogues around the world have always used and will continue to use to gain power and then hold on to it. As Moy's name put it, the fact is that populism is not an ideology. Instead, it's a strategy to obtain and, and retain power. It's been around for centuries, recently appearing to resurface in full force, propelled forward by the digital revolution, very important part of the modern populist phenomenon, precarious economies, and the threatening insecurity of most people's everyday lived lives. This doesn't make populism any the less dangerous. In fact, it makes it more dangerous because it's driven by power and the desire to find enemies. And if you find your enemies, you can then remain in power. Populism thrives on conspiracy. Uh, you see, I don't follow Donald Trump's tweets every 3.30 in the morning, but he's got a lot out there, as you know. Erdogan got conspirators everywhere um, and, and many other populists too. They find enemies even when they don't exist. They try to criminalize all opposition, play up external threats, and more often than not insist that its critics at home are merely working for foreign governments. Yet one would be wasting one's time, he argues, to seek some deeper cause of this particular phenomenon. It's about power and how to sustain, maintain, or retain it. A second, I think, more influential view is that populism in its modern iteration, is a search for meaning, identity, if you like. It's a kind of form of identity politics. It's a search for identity and meaning in what a previous director, and a very fine director of this school, Tony Giddens, earlier termed the runaway world of globalization. A world which, according to Giddens at least, is shaking up our existing ways of life, no matter where we happen to be. Moreover, this world, says Giddens, is emerging in an anarchic, haphazard fashion, making for anxieties and scarred by deep divisions and feeling we're all in the grip of forces over which we have no control. 
There's much in that. Indeed, not only do we have no control, because of the speed and the depth of the changes across traditional frontiers, many citizens feel as if their world is not just passing them by, but being undermined by change brought about by what Giddens calls the runaway world of globalisation. But it has been experienced most by an older cohort of white people who simply want to turn the clock back to a time when the people in their towns looked like them, sounded like them, and even had the same traditional loyalties as most of them. An age, in other words, where there were fewer immigrants, as they would say, and even fewer Muslims living amongst them. Globalization and socioeconomic factors in this account play a role, as Giddens makes clear, but according to his narrative, at the heart of the modern populist problem is not so much economics as identity and meaning, driven by a set of incohate but nonetheless key questions about questions about who am I? What is it to be a citizen of this country? What is it to be an American, a Frenchman, or whatever? And do I still live in my own country, surrounded by people who share the same values and allegiances as myself? There is, however, a third way of understanding populism. And this argues that modern populism is less the result of an identity crisis, although it may be connected, and much more the result of what an Indian economist, a very fine Indian economist, who's now advisor to Prime Minister Modi, Arvind Subramanian, he's termed hyperglobalization. Notice the term hyperglobalization, not just globalization. This, according to Arvind, who's a very fine economist, I must say, this latest form of globalization, he notes, began slowly in the 1970s, accelerated rapidly in the 1980s, and took off in earnest in the 1990s, and continued to accelerate there afterwards. For years, the result of this 30-year headlong drive towards the future only seemed to be positive and beneficial. Indeed, according to the many defenders of globalization, the new globalization generated wealth, drew in once previously closed economies, drove up the world's GDP, encouraged real development in countries that had for years been poor, and most important of all in terms of human welfare, helped reduce poverty too. Not surprisingly, by the way, China and the developing countries are more in love with globalization now than is the West. And so too, by the way, is India. They are and remain its beneficiaries in the modern terms. Not for the, but not for the West. But for the West more generally, it has through time created all sorts of downside problems. Wealth became ever more concentrated in the hands of the few, the 1%. Thomas Piketty's book, by the way, sold hundreds of thousands talking about inequality and under conditions of modern globalization. Middle class incomes stagnated in the West, and they have. Meanwhile, many of the working class in Western countries, and not just white ones, found themselves being driven out of work either by jobs going elsewhere or by a rush of cheap imported goods largely coming from low-wage economies. And to add to their economic woes, immigration, they argued, undercut the price of their labor. Thus, what may have been great for the corporations and the consumer, according to this analysis, turned into an economic tsunami for the traditional bastions of organized labor. Now, a crucial component part of what I would describe as the materialist interpretation of populism, I don't know if it's Marxist, but it's materialist, and it's not the same thing, Another part that's been more recently been provided, and I really recommend you to read the article by James Montier and Philip Pilkington. Now, they don't deny that globalization has important downsides. On the contrary, globalization is very much part of the reason for populism. 
But they developed the argument even further by insisting that what has led to the very real crisis of the West is not just globalization in the abstract, but what they more precisely term a broken system of economic governance. This system they define as neoliberalism. It arose in the 1970s and was characterized since by four significant economic policies. And these are the abandonment of full employment as a desirable policy goal and its replacement with inflation targeting, a focus at the firm level on shareholder value maximization rather than reinvestment and growth, and the pursuit of flexible labor markets and the disruption of trade unions and worker organizations. It's a general phenomenon right across the West. Taken together, if you take all those things together, and it seems to me they describe it pretty well, certainly since the 1970s and the neoliberal economic and theoretical revolution, by the way, partly invented the LSE by one man called Hayek. We can go on to that if you like. It's not always been a bastion of Bolshevism, you might know. Taken together, this new neoliberal order, they believe, has not only skewed the balance towards capital and away from labor in the West, the regime it has created has also given rise to low growth rates, lower investment rates, lower productivity growth, increasing wealth and income equality, diminished job insecurity, and a seriously deflationary bias in the world economy. So it isn't so surprising that people are revolting against the system. Moreover, instead of the 2008 crisis undermining this order, it has only made things much, much worse. And given all this, we shouldn't be so surprised. There's been a backlash in the form of populism. The only surprise, it didn't happen earlier. Now, what I then go on to, to argue, and I'm not going to take this all in every single uh, beautiful, beloved detail, is to say that much of what I think each of these explanations, are, an explanation around materialist explanations, an explanation around identity, and the first explanation constructed around a theory of maintaining, sustaining power by demagogues under certain circumstances, and that goes on all the time. I think all of that contains some elements of the truth. You don't have to choose between different explanations. You don't have to fight battles between various camps. It seems to me you've got to maybe integrate all three of those different kind of uh, paradigms, if you want to use that awful word, into thinking about the rise of, of populism in, in the modern period. I would, however, just add a few other things in, and then I'll come to some concluding remarks, and then you can ask me as many unpleasant questions as you like, but please be nice. Uh, I think the one thing that many of these explanations leave out, and this gets me back to what something I've been very much interested in for 40 years and have written about, is the question of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. I think this has had and, and still has an enormous impact on the world we live in. That's an obvious point to make. But what the end of the Cold War did, and I think the collapse of the Soviet Union, the collapse of actually existing socialism and the socialist project, I think it's discombobulated, if you like, ideological moorings. Everybody's at sea in this world. The notion of a right and a left is, is, kind of not, is no longer there in anything like the old same way. Um, and before 1989 and 1991, I'd also say there was some kind of balance in the world. I think it's not surprising that hyper-globalization is accelerated by the collapse of actually existing socialism. In other words, if you like, the Soviet Union and the threat of the Soviet Union, the threat of communism, the threat of whatever you want to call it, kept the West, let me put it bluntly, intelligent, politically aware that there were political consequences of economic policies. I think once you take away that, you take away the fear 
And I think it's at that point you get that hyper-globalization accelerated. I know it began in the 1970s. In other words, you take it, you, you kind of, you remove a built-in, uh, you, what, the, what, what the old socialist order did in a way, or inefficient and repressive though it undoubtedly was, it kind of restrained the free market. It restrained the free market. And after 89 and 1991, everybody believed that the only solution was free and unfettered markets. Markets were always better than governments, allowing the entrepreneurs to be entrepreneurs, to get maximum profit, etc., etc., was the only way forward. If there are a few losers along the way, well, they can migrate somewhere else. Or we can put them in prison, as they've done in the United States in very large numbers. Or we can give them some rotten social welfare and keep them in marginalized towns in marginalized parts of the world. I think that's what happened. I genuinely think that is what happened. There was, in other words, a very high degree of hubris after 1991. If you like, the market fundamentalists took over <laughs> and, and felt free, free reign. Uh, anything was now possible. Even if it caused pain to some, this was a price worth paying for the general good. And there was no alternative, so carry on regardless. I think there's another thing. is I don't think, and I, I don't say this as somebody who is uh, you know, any, any, any massive uh, opponent of China. I've got my criticisms of China like anybody should, uh, which is fair enough. And most, most, most critical people I've ever met of China are Chinese, by the way. Uh, and I'm going to Beijing soon to Beida, where I meet even more critics of China and the Chinese Communist Party than I meet in the West sometimes. But I don't think we quite figured out in the 1990s and in the early part of the noughties, I don't think we quite figured out what would, it, what would it mean for the West of a massive low-wage economy like China joining the world market? I think we kind of got it a bit. Oh, we're, we're, we can have cheaper baby clothes or something, you know. Or, you know, we're going to get a lot of cheap goods. It'll keep inflation down. And it's, it's going to, you know, reduce poverty in China. It's all very good. I've never heard many economists, by the way, who are terribly critical of China. Economists generally love China because about growth, you know, and all the rest of it. And that's, that's perfectly fine. I quite like economists sometimes, even at the LSE. Um, but I don't think generally we fully worked out. If you get an economy of the size and the dynamism of China suddenly coming into the world market, and it really only entered the world market in the 1990s, and then with the WTO, that's when it really entered. That's when China really adopted and embraced globalization. You know, right through, and you, you recently may have seen the, 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 the speech by President Xi Jinping at Davos say, globalization, wonderful. I love globalization. What's wrong with Donald Trump? You know, uh, you know so it, it, they've adopted, they've, they've, they've bought into globalization because it's worked for China. Uh, massively so, massively so. After quite a lot of ideological divide within the party, by the way, can you control globalization domestically? Can it, it won't disturb the status quo within China. They manage that quite well, actually, much more effectively than we ever thought they could. But on the economic side, I don't think we worked out what it would mean for the West of a massive low-wage economy like China and others, emerging markets, joining the world market club. I just don't think we got it. We kind of thought it was just good they joined, but we never then thought, well, what are going to be the consequences of them joining? Now, many economists will no doubt tell you, and they do, the free trade is always a good thing. Fair enough. David Ricardo said it. The great Adam Smith said it. John Maynard Keynes said it. Even Milton Friedman said it. So it must be for the best. Moreover, if jobs have been lost in the West, this we are told, 
has little to do with free trade and more to do with new labour-saving technologies. In fact, all those manufacturing jobs which have been lost in Europe and the US would have had to go anyway because of technology and automation. You hear that all the time. But it seems to me on the other side of the coin there's ample evidence to suggest a rather different story, that in fact millions of jobs have been lost in the West. No point running away from it because of new emerging economies joining the game. It's good for the emerging economies and I fully applaud and support that. But the consequences for the West have had downsides. We can't go away from that either. It's not merely a nationalist myth. Even Donald Trump said some truth. You know, I've looked through all those speeches. Most of them, I think, were absolutely incoherent and appalling. But there's a kind of a truth he's saying. A lot of jobs have been lost. A lot of well-paid American jobs have been lost. They've gone southwards and eastwards. And there's a fair amount of good evidence to suggest that one of the reasons for that is these new big economies joining. It's not totally a nationalist or chauvinistic uh, myth. I'd also say, too, there's something about powerlessness. Um, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I think populism is very much an expression in the West of a deep sense of powerlessness. Um, the powerlessness of ordinary citizens. Okay, you vote. You can demonstrate outside Parliament. You can throw rocks at policemen sometimes, whatever. But in a, in a way, I think most ordinary citizens have increasingly felt powerless, less and less connected to political institutions and to the political class. And there's been an alienation between ordinary citizens and the political class, both on the right and on the left, by the way. Um, and you can understand that, too. The powerlessness of ordinary citizens when faced with massive changes going all around them in their communities, their jobs, their, their, their industries. But it's also the powerlessness at another level of Western leaders and politicians who don't seem to have an answer to the many challenges facing the West right now. Many ordinary people might feel they've got no control and express this by supporting populist movements who promise to restore control to them, bring back control. That's the slogan. But in reality, it's also the established political parties, the established politicians and the established structures of power as well, which are equally powerless. Powerless, as many people would now say, to stop the flow of migrants from the Middle East and Africa. Powerless to control the borders of their own nation states. Powerless when faced with a terrorist threat. Powerless to prevent rich people offshoring and avoiding taxes. And powerless to reduce unemployment to any significant degree across most of the Eurozone, particularly in the southern part of the Eurozone, and especially amongst young people. And you can see, therefore, why young people are going to be attracted to the populist movements in many ways. Now, this might have been finesse, but for two other factors. One clearly was the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, this did not only deliver a major blow to the Western economies, they haven't yet got over it. If any economist tells you we've got over it, don't believe them. Uh, go to another class. Come to my class, much better. Um, and it certainly had a massive impact in Europe. There's no doubt about that. It's also undermined faith in the competence of the establishment. I mean, when people say, don't believe the experts, I kind of think, oh, hold on, I'm an expert, aren't I? Why should you believe me? And I think that's a very reasonable question for many people to ask. What has the establishment delivered? And, and Trump, by the way, exploited this brilliantly, by the way, politically. What has the establishment in the United States delivered? The Iraq War. Duh. <laughs> Great success story, yeah? Fantastic. What's the establishment of the European Union delivered? 40% youth unemployment. Duh. Huh? The 2008 crisis. Wonderful. 
Who's ever going to believe the experts are gay? You know, I think there is a sense in which populism is a deep sense of scepticism by those in power. And for good reason. And for good reason. It's no point just saying they're rational. There's reasons why, you know, elites have got so many things wrong and they've been held to account for having got so many things wrong. I think all these things together, but whether it's 2008, whether it's the Iraq war, whether it's the failure to get out of the, of the miserable economic crisis in which southern Europe is still embroiled deeply, all of these things are inevitably bound to hit normal politics. It isn't normal politics will be resumed as soon as possible. It can't be after all of what I've said. Finally, and I'm coming to the end of my talk, you'll be relieved to know, um, I wonder too how much the widespread notion, and there is a widespread notion out there, that what we're living in is a world where the West is in decline. You know, we're told this all the time. You know, the EU going down. The United States in decline. The West in decline. Everybody else is going up. We're going down. You know, it's like, you know, they, the West had its moment for three or four hundred, two hundred years, whatever. Now it's on the way down and somebody else is going to rise up to take over. Whether it's going to be China or Asia or the rest or the BRICS or whatever. Goldman Sachs says it, they all say it. Well, therefore it must be true. Um, I wonder too how much the widespread notion there's a great power shift taking place in the international order has not also contributed to the rise of populism in the West. After all, for the last few years, we've heard the same mantra being uttered by the bulk of public intellectuals, namely that the rest, viewed here as either Asia, China, or the BRICS, will somehow soon be running the world. Indeed, a friend of mine wrote a book called China, When Will It Rule the World? Sold a million copies. There you go. Somebody believed it. Meanwhile, we've been informed by the same Jeremiah's that the poor old West is on the way down. Now, as I've argued elsewhere several times, and people sometimes listen to me and often don't, this view of enormous power shift leading to either a post-American, post-Western world has been much exaggerated. I think that talk of a power shift has been much exaggerated. But it's almost become the, the new truth of our age. It's become almost the common sense of our times. And it's had consequences, I think, intended or otherwise. And one of these has been to make many people living in the West feel deeply uncertain about their future. This, in turn, has made many of them look to those politicians and movements to say they will stand up for the West. Or, in the American context, make America great again. Moreover, the view that a power shift was or is underway has also helped those in the UK make the case for Brexit. For many of those who lived through that wonderful period when we finally decided to commit economic suicide, the Brexit vote, I mean, it's amazing how many times those arguing for Brexit, Europe's finished, the future lies in Asia. The future lies elsewhere. Europe is history. Again, exploiting this notion of a power shift to make the case. And very successfully too as well, to be perfectly honest. Whether it was true or not doesn't really matter. I'll end then with the question which comes back to farewell to globalization because I think there's a question mark there somewhere. There's a semicolon anyway. There's a colon. To what degree, however, does populism pose a serious threat to globalization? Which brings us back to the economics of this. Well, I've got a really pathetic answer here. <laughs> when I look at this answer now, I really want to kind of leave the stage. Uh, the simplest answer, to be perfectly honest, is not as much <laughs> as some alarmist would lead you to believe. That that, that's what the facts tell you. If globalization is measured by cross-border financial flows, uh, 
international tourism, foreign direct investment, all those kind of metrics of measuring globalization at an economic level. By any measure, the world, it doesn't seem to me, is deglobalizing. I think that's, been, that's an exaggeration. I can't see that. Uh, nor is it likely to do so, this is important, as long as the five big economic actors in the world, the European Union, the United States, China and India and Japan, continue to support policies which favor more integration, not less. More extensive supply chains, not fewer, and see continued advantage economically by being part of the world market. As long as there are major powers behind globalization, it seems to me globalization will continue because power and globalization are connected. Globalization is not just an act of God. It's not just something that happens spontaneously economically. It is something driven by powers who want globalization and see advantage in globalization. After all, globalization was restored after World War II by the United States using its power to, to achieve the re reconstruction or the, re the reimagination of globalization after World War II. So to this degree, the forces in favor of globalization would still appear to be far stronger than those pitted against it. Yet, as our populist revolt in the West reveals only too clearly, those who feel they've lost rather than won uh, out of the whole system are becoming increasingly vocal, and vocal in a negative way. Martin Wolf of the FT has also made the important point that even if globalization might not be in rapid reverse, it is beginning to lose its dynamism. And to add to the West woes, there is now much greater ambivalence across the West about the benefits of free trade and trade deals. It wasn't just Trump who attacked trade deals such as NAFTA and TPP. In Europe, too, there would seem to be less and less support for TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. While the UK, of course, which was at the heart of the global economy, indeed, you could say one of the architects of globalization after the war with the United States, has just voted to get out of the largest single market in the world. Hardly a vote for globalization, whatever Mrs. May might think. Globalization, to be fair, may still be on the road. Uh, no return to the 1930s. But that's not the point. However, the case for it is no longer being made with anything like the same confidence we found 10 or 15 years ago. Nobody. And if the unpicking of what a man called Simon Fraser has termed the pro-globalization orthodoxy continues then we could very well find ourselves facing even more challenges to our liberal world economic order. The populist backlash, one suspects, still has a long way to run. And whether globalization can withstand the assault remains to be seen. Thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. So, uh, Professor Cox is happy to take questions. Uh, please keep them focused and, uh, and concise, and also uh, take into account that this uh, uh, session is being recorded for a post podcast. <laughs> oh, you didn't tell me that. I've been less controversial. We have someone with a microphone, yeah, so if, yeah, you raise your, uh, if you raise your hand... Hi, thank you so much for speaking on your work. Um, so I think you, you, you define these clear entities that are like the political elite class, 
the populist leader, the charismatic leader, and the people that fall underneath this umbrella of the common people. So I'm wondering, what do you see as the future of societies uh, when people exist outside of what falls under that umbrella of the common people? So who, how do you see those outsiders either playing into populism, opposing populism, playing into globaliz uh, globalization and opposing yeah. well, globalization? Let me say first and foremost that in some ways I think populism is a necessary and vital wake-up call for democracies. And, and kind of what I'm really trying to say to people is stop getting into moral outrage about populists. You may not like many of the things they say or do, whether it's on the left or the right. The first, our, first, our first purpose as public intellectuals is to understand, because only by understanding and assessing where it's coming from can we then begin to address some of the questions and problems which they pose. And it does seem to me in this country, say with Brexit, you know, did I, did I agree with Brexit? I certainly did not. I, you know, I've been depressed. Well, not too depressed. I've been pretty depressed. Uh, and I know some of my friends in the United States who, you know, ardently and strongly supported Hillary Clinton, whatever the limits of her campaign were, have been, you know, deeply, deeply, deeply uh, upset. Um, and not just because they lost. <clears throat> it's not just a question of losing. It's losing against something which one couldn't even define as being within the, the, within the pale, if you like. But my, my argument, however, still remains that the questions which and the way that Trump addressed some of those questions and problems may not be the way you would address them, but at least he addressed them. Now, if we don't address those questions, then other people will. That's my kind of worry. Um, and I think this is really a, a terrific, a wonderful wake-up call, frankly, for liberal elites. Uh, because they've got to start saying, it's not just good enough to say, oh, there are going to be losers of globalization. You know? <laughs> they've got to deliver something. It's not, it's not good enough to say the people who voted for Trump were deplorables. Or they're white. I mean, come on, 70% of the American electorate is white. So what are we going to say that 70% of all the American electorate, you know, because they're white they're, and old, or don't have college degrees, you know, we kind of push them to one side. I think what we've got, I mean, but this is my own pol political view on this. That we've really, kind of, as public intellectuals, really we've got to seriously address the kind of issues that were raised in the Brexit vote in this country, were raised by, um, in, in, in the Trump campaign in the United States. And it seems to me much better, if I might be honest about it, much better that people come into the political system you know, and vote within the system and, and try and change the system politically. Because after all, Trump, he may not have got all the votes, but he got, all the, he got, he got enough electoral seats in the electoral college. As we know, that's how the system worked. You know, Brexit got more, more votes than my guys, <laughs> unfortunately. So they're in the system, they're working within the democratic order, and therefore that to me is a positive. The worst thing that could happen, and then this is my worry, and this is my big, big worry, Trump won't be able to deliver on so many of his promises to ordinary working class people and ordinary people in the United States on many of the economic promises, bringing manufacture back to the United States of America, you know. I mean, I think some of that is just not going to be. And what then happens when people then become highly disillusioned you know, with, with the Trump. What's next? Is it apathy or is it something worse? And I don't think the same is true with Brexit. And it's put people like myself in a very difficult political position because the majority of my fellow citizens voted to get out of the European Union. I think that was a, not a very intelligent, you know, kind of thing to do. I'm sorry. I, I, I think it was economically really problematic and it's going to become more problematic the way we are going along. But at least they are working th these problems through democratic politics. My worry in this country is the people who made the case for Brexit across the board 
both on the Labour side but especially on the Conservative side, they won't be able to deliver what they promised. They won't be able to deliver the £350 million they said they were going to give back to the National Health Service. They, are not, they have ignored all the basically downside problems of foreign direct investment not coming to this country, of parts of the city of London being picked off by Paris, Dublin, Frankfurt. They didn't think any of that through. They just said that was scaremongering. So my really big worry is that the populists, and I only tried to explain who they are, what they are, and why people vote for them, and under what circumstances... But the problem is the populace won't be able to deliver. That's my genuine deep worry. And when they can't deliver, then politics could get very unpleasant because then people will start looking for real scapegoats and finding all sorts of enemies who are undermining what you are trying to achieve. That's my worry moving forward as we go forward. And I hope that's an answer to your question. Is it an answer? Sort of. Sort of. It's 50%. That's not bad. For an academic, that's very good, by the way. Okay. I see two, uh, two questions. I would take them together, please. Hi. I'm Mark Lessing from Germany. Hi there. You mentioned that the financial crisis is not over yet. No. Nope. And, well, considering the London summit on April 2nd, 2009, and the measures put in place they are still there in terms of monetary and fiscal policy. Do you have any hope or can you give us a perspective of <laughs> how long this will last? <laughs> oh, you should ask an economist. They always have the answers. Um, I've been very horrible about economists. I'm at the London School of Economics after all, and this is being recorded, so I'll be very nice about economists now. Um, look, um, let me just take the United States to start off with. I won't take Germany because I think that there's, a, there's, a, there's a big divide between how the U.S. has responded to the crisis and how Germany has. I mean, Germany's exported its way out of the crisis after taking some very thorough labor reforms under Schröder in the late 1990s. You know, so that's one way. But I, I have some very grave worries about austerity, whatever, however you define it, not because of its impact on Germany, but its impact on southern Europe. And it's creating an enormous divide between the north and south of Europe, and we can't get away from that. I don't blame it all on Germany. I don't follow that kind of line, but I think we've got to have a, a, a change of direction in, on that. But on, the, on your more general point, and that is, that, that is something I really would want, want, want uh, the new German government, which is going to be under Mrs. Merkel pretty obviously, I think, to, to address, whether she will or whether the German public and the German popular will want to, you know, get softer on economic policies, I'm not so sure. I think not. Um, on the extraordinary measures, though, which you pointed to, um, look, I've, I've been listening to this now. It's, do you know next year is going to be 10 years since the financial crisis of 2000? It's quite unbelievable. I'm organizing a conference with some friends here on, on it. It's unbelievable to think 10 years. It would be extremely, and I follow Martin Wolf on this, really. I really do. Not, I don't follow him on everything, but I follow him on this. What Martin argued in, the recent, in a number of articles in the FT, and they're very well worth reading, his basic line is quite simple. We're not out of the woods yet. And the reason we've managed to kind of bubble along, particularly the U.S. economy, but not just the U.S., is because we've taken extraordinary measures, you know, massive quantitative easing, interest rates down to virtually nothing, um, you know, in the United States, President Obama saved two, car, two of the three car industries by a massive state intervention, basically nationalized the mortgage market, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These were extraordinary measures by any, by any degree and by any sense. 
And now, of course, you will get economists, and you hear it in this country, you hear it in the United States, no doubt you hear it in Europe. Okay, we've got over the worst. Let's get back to realizing the enemy's inflation. Let's get back to getting interest rates up, because if we get interest rates up, this will reward savers, and we don't have enough saving. I hear the arguments, all that I heard it all this morning in another debate in the Bank of England between like, the softies and the hard men, you know, the hard women, actually. Um, and I, can't, I have to say, I'm still on the side of Martin Wolf. I, I think, frankly, and it is a, it's not a prediction, it's a kind of worry, and I say it as a non-economist, but thinking about these things now for 10 years, I think if the Fed were to pull up interest rates by any significant amount over the next year or two, I think its knock-on effects, firstly, for the rest of the world economy would be very, very problematic because everybody else would then have to push up their interest rates to stop an outflow of money back into the United States as interest rates went up there. I think the world economy is, is, is bumping along. It's bumping along. And I, I still don't think we've got over the crisis. We've taken extraordinary measures to get out of that crisis, to manage the consequences of that crisis. I just don't think we're in a position now, or will be, coming back to your question, whether we're ever going to be in a position where we are not going to be almost in a state of emergency uh, and, and with all the results that that means. And that, that's, that's a great worry. My, my, I'll tell you one thing. On, on one level, whatever I would criticize President Obama for, I think he did one thing so right and so correctly, and I'm, I think the United States should be very happy they had him as president, whatever you may think of his politics on foreign policy. I think he had Ben Bernanke as his chair of the Fed, and Ben Bernanke, he was an economic historian of the World Depression. And from that, learning a lesson of the causes of the World Depression and the relationship between the Wall Street crisis of 29 and the World Depression, Ben Bernanke drew a very clear, clear conclusion. You must, under no circumstances, pursue deflationary policies to get out of a deflationary situation. You'll only deepen the crisis. So I'm, I'm a bit worried that the orthodox economists who want the interest rates to go up again, etc., and all the other things, saying it's, we, we, we're simply over... I, I just don't know if we can get out of it. And the rise of populism, it seems to me, bringing the politics back in, makes that even less likely. That makes it even less likely, because people are now going to look for job protection, they're going to look for, you know, they're going to look for economic you know, kickback from, from voting the way they have. So no, I, I think those extraordinary measures will remain. And, and I have to say, uh, in my mind, I'm, I'm not unhappy with that, particularly when it comes to the United States. That would be my take on it anyway. I think it's a different question when we come to Germany. I think there's different kinds of issues and questions there about German economic policy and its impact on the EU and the Eurozone and on the south of Europe. Okay, we have a question here, and I would take it together with a question over there. Sure. It's okay if I... Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. Thank you. Good evening. So, pragmatically speaking, uh, Brexit is harmful for the UK, and many people are quite unhappy with Trump's policies. But those people who voted for Brexit or Trump, as I can see, have not really changed their view. <laughs> so, uh, my question is, in your opinion, what should happen for uh, populism and populists to become universal and popular? And uh, do you think this will ever happen at all? Thank you. Uh, well, shall we, shall we yeah, yeah, take sure. the Good uh, question. question from that young lady yeah. over there? Hi there. Uh, hi there sir. 
Uh, sorry, I just found this quite interesting. I wonder if you would mind elaborating on uh, what do you think, like the um, collapse of Soviet Union in 1991, did, you, did that make Western policy making less strategic? And yeah, how did it Very impact? Very good question. On? Yeah, excellent. Outstanding question. Um, both. I, I, I'll answer the first question first, hopefully. Um, well, from what we can see, the Trump supporters are even more pro-Trump than they were before. Um, and, and let me say something, and this may, sound, this may sound terribly uh, un-PC to say it in the LSE, um, because I suppose everyone's waiting for Trump to be impeached. Uh, by the way, just keep waiting. I just don't think it's going to happen. It's got a Congress, both House and the Senate, who depend on Trump. And most of the governors in the United States, who have very great power, of course, across the U.S., are, are Republicans. Now, in private, they may say all sorts of unpleasant things against Trump and all the rest of it. But the, ch the, chance, the likelihood of impeachment... So we, we've got Trump. And we may have Trump not for one term, but for two terms. And, unless the whole thing on Russia turns out. that We learn that Trump is fluent in Russian, has been a member of the KGB for 25 years. But that, you know, I think that's pretty unlikely. Okay. So unless... It is a really big one. You know, let, let's just assume Trump's going to be around and, and, and stop thinking that we're going to get rid of the problem because he, he's, he, he's so vulgar. You know, uh, oh, him, you know, his son, you know, had a chat with, with a Russian agent, which clearly was an agent. You know. Okay, so, and, and so if that is the case, uh, we've got to kind of think through what's going to be the, re the consequence of Trumpism in the United States. Now, I, te I, I kind of take the view that America will get over Trump but we may not get over Brexit. That's my kind of differentiation between the two. Let me put it, push, the, push the argument even further. It's a very unorthodox argument. Trump could actually be successful economically. Now, if you, I mean, I don't know if you've been following this. I kind of watch this and I kind of think, in horror, no! Dow Jones has gone over 21,000. No, he's gone 22,000. Um, Trump has a strategy. He's going to lower corporation tax. He's going to build quite a lot of infrastructure. He's going to increase defense spending. That's the best way to get jobs and, you know, blah, 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 moving in the United States. You may not approve of any of this, you know. He's going to deregulate the coal industry. This is why he's getting out. He doesn't, he doesn't even know. He knows where Paris is now because Mr. Macron took him there, you know. But he knows there's a Paris, you know, the, the climate change agreement. He'll get out of that. You know, you can see West, in West Virginia, they love Trump. I know West Virginia quite well because I lived in Virginia and I used to travel up there. Uh, you know, the coal mining industry. He's not going to restore the whole American coal mining industry, but he'll restore quite a lot of it. He can actually restore some part of the manufacturing base in the United States. Not enough. Not enough to give people back their, work, their jobs in Indiana and, and Pennsylvania and all those, you know, the, the lakes where, where they voted for him in some numbers. So we may be in a situation, and I think we've got to contemplate this objectively speaking, as they used to say, that, that he may actually be a successful economic president. And if Wall Street keeps climbing, and if profitability in the United States keeps rising, and if the return on equities keeps going up, and, you know, and, people have, and there's enough supporters there on the Republican side who are devoted to Trump, religiously devoted to Trump. Then they're devoted to Trump in ways that I have not seen since the liberal kind of surge for John F. Kennedy in the 1960s. You know, there's a kind of very real sense that Trump is speaking American, real American. To, you know, there's that. It is out there. It is out there in the, in the Midwest, in the, in the heart, in the South. 
And, and, and in a number of states you may not ever visit. <laughs> uh, and, and it's there amongst the born-again Christians who are one-fifth of the American electorate. Don't forget that. 20% are born-again Christians. They voted 80% for Trump. On, you know, so he's got a base there, and it's a very hard base. And he'll always go back to that base. And if he can deliver on some, economic, some of the economic promises, he may or may not, but I have a suspicion he's going to deliver quite enough. And with a divided Democratic opposition, which is more divided now than the Republicans. They may not like Trump, but the Democrats don't know which way to turn now. Do they go to the, back to the center again, which they did with Clinton, or do they go the line of Sanders and move the party to the left and go for a class line to, re, to reconnect with some of that white working class support, which they, they've obviously manifestly lost? Um, so it could well be on the, on the Trump side, and I'm speculating, but I have a kind of, in the back of my head, I've got a suspicion it may be, that he, he, he's going to be around for some time. I, I won't make a prediction he's going to be a second-term president. Nobody could ever make that prediction. Let's just see what happens in the midterms next year. But if those midterms do not return a serious you know, shift in the political balance within Congress, then you know, look forward to a second-term presidency. And it would be up to the Democrats then to come up with an answer to Trump and Trumpism, which Mrs. Clinton clearly did not have when in that campaign of, of 2016. Sadly, I have to say, because I have much admiration for, for her capabilities. On the Brexit side, my God, well, that's pretty boring and depressing and everything else. Um, look, let me, let me be blunt. Um, I, I, I think... The, the referendum was one thing, the recent election we had in this country was another. And I think the ice is cracking. I think the ice is cracking in this country politically. Um, the election was not an election against Brexit, but it, 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 it's, it was clearly implicitly an argument against hard Brexit. Even Jeremy Corbyn, who doesn't know which way to go on this issue, because he says he's for Brexit, but he's not for Brexit, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, he's all over the place on this, sadly. Um, I think the political ice in this country is cracking. Bit by bit, the consensus argument about the benefits of Brexit are simply being undercut daily, day by day. The drip, 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 drip feed is coming home. You know, Ryanair going off to Vienna. Now, it's not a massive, it's not a massive blow to the British economy, but it's indicative. You know, people are beginning to offshore to Dublin. You know, Barclays, HSBC. We'll just put a little a big office, by the way, a very big office in Paris. Frankfurt. I mean, to be honest, when I, I go to the continent of Europe, which I, I very much enjoy doing, because it's nice to be back in Europe. Um, you know, I go there and I speak to people. I was recently in Madrid, and you can see... People are looking at London and saying, now what can I pick off? You know, and I don't blame them. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. You know, we went for divorce. They didn't want a divorce. We did. You know, for whatever misdemeanors Europe had committed against us, whatever they did. And they're going to they're pay us back for this. And it, this is what worries me. And we're, Britain is now, it seems to me, and I'm sorry to say this, because it's a country I really like. London's a city I love, of course. Um... We've not just shot ourselves in the foot, we've shot ourselves in the head over this. And it could well be that in a year's time, in a year's time, we will arrive at a position at saying it is impossible to unscramble an egg. We will find we can't unscramble this damned egg. 
We can't just get out because the cost of doing so, loss of access to the single market, to all the rest of it, not recognizing the European Court of Justice, the whole question on citizenship, the loss of jobs, the, the undermining of confidence in the British economy as a stable place to invest. I'll give you one final story on this. I was in China, Beda, uh, last year, and Mr. Hammond, the then uh, Treasury Secretary, no, he was then Foreign Minister, Foreign Secretary, he made a wonderful speech, actually a very good speech, at uh, Beidar University to all the uh, LSE Peking University students. And he said this, he said, come to Britain, he said to, to, to the Chinese people there, to the students, and I'm glad there's great numbers of Chinese students in this country, and I hope they remain, most, more than welcome. Um, and everybody else, by the way. And, but he said, come to Britain, we are the gateway to Europe. Quote, unquote, the gateway to Europe. Yeah. Well, we don't look much like the gateway to Europe at the moment. And I'm sorry, but it's going, to, it's going to affect us. And it's, it's affected our status as a country. I go abroad now, and I kind of think people are kind of having a good laugh, <laughs> frankly. You know, I really feel that Brexit is going to be a much more difficult thing. And we may end up in a year and a half's time basically having to negotiate with the Europeans to stay in. Because getting out and the consequences of getting out are going to be so, so vast. And, what, and we will have spent two, three years, maybe, in this hiatus, which has done us damage. I, can't, I wish I didn't have to say that. There's no question it's done Britain damage abroad. There's no doubt about it. And, that, and that's where we are. Now, on the collapse of the USSR, well, how long do you have? Um, one of my favorite topics, the collapse of the USSR. Um, yes, I, 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 I take the geostrategic view of economics, the geopolitical view of economics. And as I hinted in my lecture, the, the, exact, the existence of actually existing socialism, inefficient, repressive, you know, all, all the criticisms you can make, I'd agree with. Okay. Um, nonetheless, the, the existence of an, alter, an apparent alternative, a balance to, to world capitalism and, and to American power and to economic ideas, certain economic ideas. I think, yes, I think, I think you used the term geopolitically, I, I used the word geopolitically intelligent. I don't know what I meant. Um, but it, it meant that there was always the possibility that if you didn't pursue what I would call intelligent policies, you know, um, then worse could happen. The fear of communism, after all, drove American foreign policy until 1989. The fear of the Soviet Union united and kept the West together until 1991. And it was that fear, which was actually no bad thing, I have to say, uh, because it mobilized and it, and it created certain policies in the West, uh, which I think, you know, kept the West socially stable and socially integrated. And I think once that, that fear was removed, this is my own take, because I know neoliberal ideas went back to the 70s, but once that fear was removed, as I argued in my lecture, I think that balance was removed, and I think that again made those who believed in markets, totally believed in markets, think, let's go, let's rip it. You know, the market has won, the market has triumphed, what I call market fundamentalism, market triumphalism, that hyper-globalization which uh, the great Indian economist Arvind Subramanian has talked about. I think it was at that point something called a world market suddenly opens up and rips open and changes the whole character of things. And I don't think we've ever thought for one moment what the consequences of that would be. And then, of course, new economies come into the world market very rapidly. China especially, but not only, but China in particular. And again, I don't think we've thought, thought through for a moment what the full-term, long-term consequences of that would be. Because we were so busy bathing in the pleasant light 
of, of, of victory, and that, that would be my, my, my take on it. By the way, I would applaud China for never having bought into that, because China at least doesn't accept that globalization means you, that the state no longer has a role in the economy. I mean, after all, it's a state-owned enterprise economy. It's an SOE economy. You know, the renminbi is not a floating currency, not last time I looked. Not, you know. <laughs> so China may have learned enough from, from the capitalist West, but still retained enough, it strikes me anyway, of political understanding that a powerful state is an important part and social as much, you know, to, to maintain a stable policy. There's many things about China I'd be highly critical of, but on, on that I think they've got something right where the West has got something very badly wrong. We have time for one last question. Yes, up there, please. We'll take this guy. Okay, I've got it. It's Obor. One Belt, One Road, yeah? Yeah, One Belt, One Road. Yeah, and it's a very nice you, acronym. Yeah, and also the Asian Construction Bank and how would that um, influence globalization? Yeah. And uh, for a second question, do you think that the West decline is inevitable? And if populism prevail, oh, succeed, if, they, if it could, um, would that reverse the trend? Okay, that's about five questions. Well done. <laughs> there's, a gen- there's, a, there's a gentleman down here who's had his hand up. Yeah, please, yeah, I'll take you. Thank you. <laughs> it's very sneaky, isn't it? One, one question, no, two, three, four. Very good. Thank you very much. I thought it was a great speech, but my point of contention with it mm. was when you said that populism was rational. Well, you're correct in mentioning that the elites have caused all the problems, and you've mentioned quite a few, from Iraq war yeah. to globalization sure. and financial crisis. Yeah. But the elites have the solutions to this problem most of the time, not the populace. So how is it rational? To, to vote well, for that's some, a very yeah. fine vote of confidence in the elites that brought us the Iraq War, the 2008 crisis. Uh, but I don't want to be rhetorical on this. I think what I was simply trying to argue is if we're going to kind of analyse populism and those who are deemed to be populist and voting for populist parties, we've kind of got to deal with them as, as what I call rational actors and not as irrational, stupid people who haven't got degrees. That's all I'm trying to say. Now, it could well be that many of them are irrational, Many of them don't have degrees, and you know, many of them maybe have views that you and I might not particularly like. No, I accept that. I accept that. But it seems to me the first task of a social scientist, and more importantly, of a committed public intellectual, which I much prefer myself to be defined as, is actually to find ways and answers to the questions they raise, even if they have answers that I don't like. I don't like the answers they come up with, for instance, on immigration. You know, I think much of that is driven by racism, xenophobia, and all sorts of other things. But they raise questions about immigration, and we've got to kind of therefore say, well, what is the rational way to deal with a rational immigration policy in any particular country at any particular time? And then, you know, if you like, combat the irrationalism and the, and, and the, mis, and the misinformation, by the way, on, particularly on immigration in this country. So much misinformation. Well, you combat that and you fight that by, you know, by using all the, all the intellectual tools at your disposal, by showing that immigrants, for instance, contribute more to this country than they take away, that without them the National Health Service in this country would go right down the River Thames and never come up again, that we wouldn't have people working in the fields of this country picking fruit and potatoes and carrots at four o'clock in the morning. You know, I mean, come on. You know, and generally speaking, the overwhelming majority of people, migrants to this country, have made an enormous contribution. And by the way, have made the food a lot better as well. Uh, Because food in this country, I remember in the 90s, was absolutely appalling. And thank God for immigrants for making my life gastronomically so much better. And, you know, so... 
but you know, I mean, we, can fight, we can fight the arguments on this, can't we? We can fight the arguments on this. But they are still asking questions. You see, this is my point. It isn't to apologize, it is to try and understand. A lot of ordinary working class people don't live in the best and greatest of circumstances, in the best and the greatest of towns. You know, they see overcrowded schools, they see a national health service where they see is buckling, and they're looking for easy scapegoats to try and explain why these things are happening. You know, the thing is happening, they are facing these problems. Class size is rising to the size of 40. You know, now we might say it's all about austerity, but there's also another stress coming into the system, which is new pressures coming from integrating, quite correctly, new groups of people coming into this country. You know, and, and that's what I'm trying to get at, really. So I, I hope that makes it a, a bit clearer. Um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you want to kind of un understand the phenomenon without you know, providing an apologia for, for, for what the phenomenon is. But as I said, you know, we need to find ways of you know, addressing the questions they raise the qu without coming up with the answers they come up with. That would be my, my, my way of looking at it. Now to the five questions that came from the top there. Um, what do I think of OBOR? It's a wonderful acronym, isn't it? One Belt, One Road. Well, good old China. Um, if, they, if they can make it work, fine. Um, it's happening. Um, the one thing I would, however, warn the president of, and I actually do when I go to China, I don't speak to the president, he doesn't speak to me. Uh, maybe he will this time after this lecture. Who knows? I might get an invitation uh, to, to, to the inner circle. Um, but I would, I would actually say, if you like, uh, the more and more China goes global, the more and more China goes outwards, the more and more China takes on new, new the, does more things abroad, the more responsibilities it's going to have thrust on it. You know, you're going to have to defend those roads. <laughs> you're going to have to defend those ports in Sri Lanka and in Pakistan. You know, you're going to have to sustain that. And you've also got to be aware that when you rise, you can also create resentments. No great power in history has ever risen without creating a hell of a lot of resentment. The British did in the 19th century. And the Americans have done quite a lot of resentment creating in the 20th by being too powerful and pushing themselves too hard too quickly. And the only thing I'd say to China, with all due respect, uh, on, on the Obor question, the one built, one road, you know, if you build the damn thing, if you construct all these things, you know, with this, you know blah, blah, blah. You know, you're going to have to kind of, you're, that's, you're going to spend stuff to take on massive numbers of responsibilities to defend, as the British found out, the, the, not, not apologizing for the British Empire, but you know, where trade goes, the flag follows. And when the flag follows, you've got to send a battleship up the Yellow River. You know, I mean, <laughs> so you've got to be a bit beware taking, you know, that kind. And I think China is, I think, well aware of this. And they don't want to kind of do the kind of job or badly, or otherwise, of the West, or the Americans. I mean, they quote. But if you, once, you, once you put your, your hand in, the finger goes in, the arm goes in, before you know where you are, you're going to be in a situation where you're going to have to start taking on more and more global responsibilities and playing the world role. And whether China's prepared to do that, I don't know. Uh, do I think the West is in decline? Um, horrible question to which there is no easy answer. What do you mean by decline? What do you mean by West? Do I think the United States is in decline? Actually, no, I don't. I'm, I'm one of the kind of unfashionable people who think the United States has still got a massive amount of bucks, a massive amount of firepower. It spends about the same as the rest of the world put together on national defense. Who's it defending itself from? Mexico? You know? <laughs> Canada? Come on. You know, I mean, it spends $600 billion a year on defense. It's got the mighty dollar, the extravagant, the, the great extravagant privilege of having the dollar. 
You know, it's got allies all over the world. He even got allies that don't like it, but still want to be its allies. I've been to so many countries in the world where people say, Americans, damned imperialists. I said, well, do you want them to go home? No way. No way. Please stay. Um, you know, that's, that's a sign of power. Well, that's a sign of real influence, you know. Even countries that may not like everything about the United States still feel the, the need for that, for that very, very tight relationship. And, and so in that sense, if the United States is not in decline, then I, I kind of think the West to that degree, the West to that degree is not, in a way, in decline. Nonetheless, there's no question that where we are, we are moving, however, in a new, to a new world. And even if I'm not entirely convinced there's a massive power shift, largely because I think the United States still has an enormous amount of power. By the way, I still think the European Union still got a lot of economic power. Still the largest market in the world. It's not irrelevant, insignificant. You know, don't write off the European Union completely. In fact, Brexit and Trump may make the European Union really strong. So, you know, having the two enemies together might, might indeed do the European Union a very great degree of good. So I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not in the declinist camp, but I am in the camp of what I, what I think is more significant. I want the world to be actually, and this is not just me emoting or playing to the audience, though I'm doing a bit of both. Um, yeah, I do think the West has to recognize that there are going to be new players in this world. And these new players in this world, and they are China, they are India, they are the emerging economy. I've just come back from India, I was in Delhi, had a wonderful three or four days there. Um, travel the world, go to Asia, go to parts of the world you generally, not, many of you do, but many, many people in this country don't. There's something really going on there. There's something very, very seriously going on there. Now, I don't want to overstate it. China's got enormous problems, India's got fantastic problems. You know, but there is something happening which has not happened for a very long time. New people, new, new faces, new color skins, new ways of seeing the world. They're coming into, into play. And it's up to the West, it seems to me, to accommodate that and to facilitate that and actually to encourage that. Because personally, I never see this as a problem. I never see this as a problem. You know, so I kind of take that longer view. Maybe the West is not in decline. It is that just everybody else is catching up, and long may they continue to do so. And it seems to me that when we get to a world which is a relatively more equal world, other than the very unequal world that we've had over the last three or 400 years, the better the world is very likely to become. And I'm not answering any of your questions, because it's five past seven and I need a drink. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Very much.